if something is a right or if something is integral to due process or to your constitutional safeguards, then that should be funded by the federal government. That only seems to make common sense to me. Well, we have to remember who has, for instance, the largest facial recognition database in the world, and that's Facebook. So do we want Facebook scanning people's pictures to determine the interest rate on their loan? What I have said is that this campaign is not just about electing a president, it is about making a political revolution. Taking money from our children and borrowing from China. People are dying. Is the program so critical, it's worth borrowing money from China to pay for it? And if not, I'll get rid of it. Stop lying! I want the truth! Now, let's see if we can avoid the apocalypse altogether. Here's another episode of Macro and Cheese with your host, Steve Grumbine. All right, this is Steve with Macro and Cheese. Today, we have the chairman of the board, chairman of the board of the Modern Money Network and Raul Carrillo. And Raul is a friend of mine. He's been on the show before. And our last show was just amazing. We touched on some things I doubt many of you have ever even thought of, which is regarding education and the rights to education. Well, today, we're going to go in a different direction. Today, we're focusing on racial taxation and surveillance. And this is a very important two-banger, folks. This is really important. It's right here. It's right now. It's happening. And for our audience, this is right up your alley. This is going to be exciting stuff for you to prepare to attack the world with great advocacy and precision. And with that, Raul, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you very much, Steve. Really happy to be back on. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a while, and I really am glad to have you on here because the two subjects we're talking about are so vital. I mean, with everything going digital these days and folks looking at cryptocurrencies and the like, and then you've got Facebook coming into the mix, you've done a great amount of work there. But right here, right now, we're watching the incredible disparity in racial equity in terms of justice, in terms of economics, in terms of income, and just life expectancy with this COVID-19 virus, you name it. And here's yet again one more way that minorities are torn apart through racial taxation. Could you go ahead and lay the groundwork for that discussion? Sure thing. So we talked a little bit about racial taxation in the context of education, as you mentioned, Steve, last time I was on here. So a lot of those insights from that discussion carry over to what is essentially a fight for not just rights, but political power right now for a lot of folks, right? So when I'm talking about racial taxation, we're talking about people being taxed differently and treated as taxpayers differently and having been classed differently as taxpayers based on racialization, right? And last time we were talking about inequities within the property tax, local property tax funding schemes for education and how that reproduces segregated schooling despite 
you know, federal law to the contrary. Now I think, you know, this is a good opportunity to talk about a little bit something different, which is how the criminal law enforcement system has been used to punish people monetarily in the form of small t taxation, and also how kind of taxpayers as a cultural identity have stood in the way of a better system. So the typical example that people give of what's called monetary sanctions, or the making of money through the criminal legal system, through the creation of debt through the criminal legal system, or the misdemeanor system, is Ferguson, Missouri, right? So as we know, Ferguson, Missouri turned into essentially around, you know, years before Mike Brown was murdered, became a open airs debtors prison, essentially. As all MMTers know, states and municipalities have very severe restrictions on their monetary powers and their ability to thus provision for themselves financially. And in Missouri, like many states, there's a balanced budget requirement. But more than that, a lot of the municipalities are handicapped from raising property taxes and other taxes as a resort of taxpayer action, which, as we discussed last time on the show, was racialized. Camille Walsh, the legal historian in Washington, did all that great work about showing how taxpayer associations fought against the integration of schooling. And it's the same forces in primarily the suburbs and in the exurbs who have made it so that taxes are hard to come by for these municipalities like Ferguson. And what they've turned to is fining people and charging people fees, often through petty crime designation, through the courts themselves, through incarceration, and really bleeding people dry in a way that only exacerbates racialized poverty for Black folks and other folks of color in Ferguson. So that's the situation that we've seen on the ground. I'll go ahead and pause here, Steve, because I imagine you have some comments as an MMT or some perspective as to how sort of messed up the situation sort of is. <laughs> well, I absolutely do, but I'm here to hear you because this is something that you have done the hard work for. And really, I've got more questions than I have answers at this point. When it comes down to areas like Flint, Michigan, and other areas throughout the country that have seen the industry leave and have left people behind destitute and have left the communities barren and without revenue, without the ability to provision itself, without federal block grants or any kind of service enabling infusion of cash. These communities are left to vie for themselves in what I'll call the race to the bottom. Absolutely. And this race to the bottom clearly is exhibited in this racial taxation scheme because when you see the businesses up and leave or to prevent them from leaving, they have to shift that burden elsewhere. And what do they do? They put it on the people least capable of absorbing that shock and the people that are more likely to be seeking alternative ways of providing for their families. Mm -hmm. And so they end up in these schemes where they are easy prey for being arrested for breaking some petty crime rule or breaking some law that is on the books that really doesn't necessarily serve the community, but provides yet again, another fine fees or penalties type of revenue stream for the city, given the structure that they've put themselves into. So I guess my question to you is, is that this race to the bottom seems to be very much a macro micro thing, and it has exhibited itself in racial taxation, I think at the end, or is racial taxation the goal or is it just the ends justifying the means? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a great question and certainly a complex one, I think, Steve. You know, there's sort of no accounting for the intention, the hard, cold intention of people who want to reproduce white supremacy. And it's sort of hand in glove, I would say. And sometimes it's not clear which is the hand and which is the glove. But the way it occurs, I think, for folks on the ground, and I'm saying this not just from a scholastic angle, but also my time fighting racial taxation as a litigator in New York City, is that it really, you know, whether it's race or class or whether it's a macro problem or a micro hate problem, really kind of ceases to matter on the pointy end of the spear, right? Of course, that doesn't mean these questions aren't important, but this is racialized class, this is gendered class, this is, you know, everything pretty integrated together. But I think what's really important and what that says is that you, well, I shouldn't say you or any individual, but movements need the intelligence on all ends, right? It's, I think, extremely helpful to understand the hierarchy of monetary power that we were just going through, and that is to say the legal design of monetary power, to say, you know, why things are bad, of course, but also to plan a counter strategy, to build counter power. And that's also where MMT comes in. So my contention in this, you know, this sort of just came up at a, I don't want to say convenient, but an interesting time. My contention in this UCLA article that I just published is that the taxpayer money rhetoric is sort of especially toxic in this scenario of racial taxation and criminal legal enforcement. And historically, what we've actually seen on the bipartisan push for decarceration, for, you know, I won't say abolition because they don't go quite that far, but for shrinking the security and surveillance state often relies, in fact, on the taxpayer money rhetoric. And it's people appealing just to pocketbooks. And I'm sort of questioning how useful that is at this point. You know, I think MMT does a great job of sort of carving up, again, the lay of the land and showing what's what, but then there's power dynamics within that. And I think if you look at this problem with an MMT lens, it sort of makes immediate sense as to materially why taxpayers is such an unwieldy class. Like this idea that we all generate taxes and give them to the government in some way, so we all have each other's best interests in mind, I don't think is right. You know, When we look at racial taxation, it seems sort of absurd to think that we all think of each other as one big blob of taxpayers. You know, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I had Kianga Yamada Taylor on not too long ago, followed up by David Freund, two sides of the same coin here. One was talking about colored property before the end of redlining. And then Kianga took it for post redlining America and the idea of watching predatory inclusion, which I'm going to call a tax, even though it's not necessarily a tax in the sense that we know it, it serves functionally as a tax with these people. I mean, they're really being targeted and penalized, and it's all part of a macro scheme. It seems to be wherever you turn your head, minorities are trapped in these schemes to keep fattening capital and to keep fattening these power structures. And you can clearly see, in my opinion anyway, the dynamic of the local community, the city and state, and then into the national conversation. But at a local level, you can clearly see the predators in all these different places, you've got them in the police, you've got them in real estate, 
You've got them in purchasing vehicles and payday lending and all sorts of other ways. Predators, predators, predators everywhere, predating especially on these most vulnerable communities. What is it that has driven us to this point where these people have been so marginalized, but yet they're seen as a cash cow? Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of inner twisted forces, right? We could be here all day talking about <laughs> the intricacies of the special features of American history that brought us this far. But I think it's really, for the purposes of this show and this conversation, important to realize that you can't separate neoliberal penalty or this, you know, the punitive aspect of hurting folks who are on the peripheries of the economy from the decision not to spend public money for not just public purpose, but to produce a society that is less violent, that is less extract. And, you know, there's all kinds of problems that come with neoliberalism and fundamentally within that, the core embrace of austerity. And one of them is obviously that, you know, with mass unemployment, you find more people, you know, incarcerated and there's some level of design intentionality within that, as David Stein from the historian would say, and as folks like Dr. Yamada Taylor and others have written about. But in general, it's that when public money is not spent for public purpose, where are folks going to get the means of subsistence to get by? You have to borrow, right? If the government is going to be stingy, then people wind up sort of automatically at the mercy of whoever's on their block. And that's not to suggest that folks don't have agency, but the fact is you have to get money from somewhere. You have to pay the tax person at the end of the day. You have to survive. And as we've discussed here before, in a monetary production economy, that means getting the money. And if the federal government is not going to do its job, is not going to pump money into the bottom of the economy in the way that we want them to, through a job guarantee, through the Green New Deal, etc., folks are always going to be at mercy of predators. And people who are, you know, oppressed for other reasons, or even just in a worse economic situation for those reasons. So most black folks having very little wealth to draw on, and especially at a time like this with the combination pandemic protest, then we're going to see more and more predation as things move along. I'm only afraid. So what would you say is the key driver behind this construct that you're laying out here in this recognition of racial taxation? You have mentioned the power dynamic. We clearly understand that the individuals that we're talking about are largely on the lower end of the income scale. So taxation and penalization and all these various components impact them very differently than it would, say, somebody that has more means, more agency, et cetera. Right. What do you think is the key here? What is the driver here? Yeah, so it's hard not to think it's subjugation and discipline at the end of the day in some of these municipalities, at least as far as the fines and fees go and the predation by the government. If you look at the Ferguson budget, and some of this was included in the DOJ report that came out after the murder of Mike Brown, is that you know black pedestrian money is not a great source of revenue for the local budget anyway. And you know when you try to drop blood from stones, it often doesn't work. But you wind up into more fiscal problems. But really people, you know, in this sort of casts into relief, like the lie in the middle of taxpayer ideology, a lot of these folks don't care so much about balancing the budget or fiscal health or sound finance or all these sort of concepts that we bat around 
you know, all the time in our neck of the woods, it's that they're interested in not carrying the burden themselves, right? And if you have to throw folks who are already in poverty further into debt, so be it. As long as the bottom doesn't all the way come out and you can just hang around the edge where people are, you know, preyed upon, but manage to still serve the parasite, <laughs> and then this <laughs> continues. And it's hard to see it, you know, changing unless we wed the fights for, you know, the anti-racist fights and the decarceration fights and the abolitionist fights with a vision of public money that allows people to flourish and not be trapped in this sort of situation. You bring up a great point of bringing together these various struggles into basically one movement and the fact that they are all interrelated. But I guess being that we do focus a lot on modern monetary theory, I guess my question is, in the currency issuer, currency user dynamic that we know Mm -hmm. in MMT, these states are left with a revenue constraint. I think there's only one state in the country that doesn't have a balanced budget amendment. I think it's Connecticut or something like that. Yeah, I think that's right. But the rest of them have a balanced budget amendment. I know they can get grants. I know they can get loans. I know that they can do their own investment portfolio through probably treasury bonds and the like. But states are largely dependent on revenues, tax revenues. Mm -hmm. And we see that in order to lure businesses into their jurisdictions, oftentimes we'll cut the bottom out and give those folks a sweetheart deal. You see what Amazon tried to do in New York. (laughs) (laughs) The idea that we'll give away the farm to wealth, who is the least needy of it, will give away the farm to wealth for just the lure of a few jobs. And rather than putting the burden on them to fund the local and state government, of which they are the largest users of services, (laughs) By far and away. Okay. (laughs) The idea that somehow or another we would put that on the poor seems to be a very interesting thing because you can almost hear the debate happening as we say this. Well, those moochers, they just want things. Why don't we cut spending? Why don't we reduce services? And lo and behold, they do. And it's all in the name of those moochers, those bad people. And you framed Mm -hmm. it perfectly because of the taxpayer dollar. But in the state and local jurisdictions, the taxpayer dollar actually holds some merit yeah. as opposed to the federal side. I'm curious, in an MMT lens, this is one of the great challenges because in order to fix this dynamic, even let's say it wasn't racially motivated, let's say it was just in general, each of these states is highly dependent on tax revenue just to fund roadways, just to fund libraries, whatever. How do we craft a policy? How do we even attack this issue, given that it is a real constraint? States do have to have revenue. I mean, obviously, we can tax the rich. That's great. But there's a reason why they're not in the rich pick up and leave or whatever. Or is that a myth? Is the white flight, is the capital flight in this case, is this a myth or is this real? Well, I think the capital flight or the white capital flight is real, and that happens probably not to the extent that Republicans will threaten, not these days, but I mean, this is how the suburbs were built, right? And sort of the issue, I think, now is that, yes, it's tricky for MMTers because taxpayer money, taxpayer identity does have a different valence, sort of, a different flavor, a different vibe on the local level, right? 
But at the same time, I would say that MMT's core insight that money is a creature of public law rather than private markets or private property is still what's important for framing, right? And that's for numerous reasons. States will still be in trouble and they will still be struggling for the foreseeable future. Like the pandemic, as we know, has wreaked absolute havoc on state and municipal budgets. And I think, you know, along with everybody else in our camp that, you know, the federal government needs to open the spigots and there needs to be better lending to municipalities and outright grants to both states and municipalities. But what needs to happen is a fundamental design about design change in how we fund certain things, right? Our enemies, the people who have created this sort of twisted fiscal federalism, knew exactly what they were doing. And Camille Walsh's book makes that apparent with respect to the Supreme Court justices and the fight for school integration. If they want to give lip service that something is a right for us, that is something that we should truly have, but they want to hamstring it nonetheless, they tie the funding to the local level, right? That's what happened with schooling. That's what's happening <laughs> with criminal legal services. Yeah. Most of the people who, get, who have an experience with the criminal legal system you know, are not necessarily automatically for it, I'd say. And it's not as if anybody asked for <laughs> you know, the carceral state, and this is something, you know, that we're demanding a right to. But the thing is, even if it's of great importance, and especially if it is of great importance, but they don't want to fund it themselves, they will trap it in a web of local fiscal control, right? And so the sort of theme that's starting to run through my scholarship, and, you know, as well as just our activism generally, is that if something is a right, or if something is integral, to due process or to your constitutional safeguards, then that should be funded by the federal government. That only seems to make sort of common sense to me. If it's something that the federal government has designated is available to you by virtue of just being a person here, then that is something that the federal government should always stand by to fund, right? And that's a long battle. But otherwise, what does it mean to have fundamental rights in this country if we're not going to pay for them? <laughs> That discussion, just real quickly, it goes right back to the initial conversations, the debate about the individual mandate and the whole concept of the ACA even. The idea of this whole federalism thing has really caused more pain than I think anybody has any idea of. Hmm. It's interesting the way you're bringing this up because, honest to goodness, this is 1865 wasn't the end, was it? I mean, it's still <laughs> going <at> on. <laughs> it looks to me, from a person that doesn't have the legal side of this, that anything that's not a right is something that's easily taken from us. And anything that is a right has to be defended. Rights are only as good as your ability to defend them and to litigate them and to ensure you maintain them. I see an incredible amount of effort put into protecting property rights but not mm. the rights of individuals like the rights we're talking about right now in terms of right. the right to liberty and freedom and justice and so forth. And the right to an education is one that we've already talked about and is very important as well. We just don't have a lot of rights. And by putting them into the states, now you got to fight it 50 times to get anywhere. Yeah, And that's what they've done with marijuana. And that's what they've done with a lot of these things that feed that prison system. Absolutely. 
anyway, talk to me a little bit about the racial component, if you will, of the drug war, which is a core part and parcel with this thing. Even now, even as we're legalizing or relaxing restrictions and so forth, there's still fines tied to these things. There's still a lot of nickel and diamond people for these local funds. Yeah, yeah. So the drug war is another good example of something that you know doesn't make a lot of fiscal sense, but is clearly used for ulterior purposes. To sort of tie in a few of the themes that you were just discussing, Steve, I think it might be useful or helpful for us to just pause here for a second and recognize what are the rights that are being defended via the war on drugs? What is the government shelling all this money out for, right? Certainly, we can come up with a long list of things that people are entitled to, but as our libertarian interlocutors would tell us, you know, no one gets hurt when you smoke weed, right? That's right. So what we're really talking about is defending a sense of propriety and, you know, arguably public health. But those are social rights. Now, what's interesting is that in any other context, the sort of people who support the war on drugs will tell you that, oh, well, the government doesn't, you know, sign big checks for social rights. It doesn't sign big checks for economic rights. Well, your right to not have marijuana around you or whatever it may be is a social right. The defense of your property is a social right. It's certainly a socioeconomic right. And it's only when we talk about giving people jobs and healthcare and housing and education and giving things to people generally that all of a sudden socioeconomic rights are too expensive. Or you can't ask the government to do that, as if it doesn't, you know, spend literally unquantifiable sums every day defending the right to private property, you know, and mm-hmm. all of these sorts of other rights. And it's a sort of conceit. And to their credit, some of legal realists and critical legal studies folks, you know, the sort of progressives and left of the legal academy do get this part. I think, and they make it clear, you know, like the typical defense of, you know, we don't have to pay for positive rights, for the rights to have something as opposed to the right to be left alone, when really those are two sides of the same coin always. But where the legal realists and the crits get hung up is on this taxpayer thing still, right? So last time we discussed San Antonio versus Rodriguez, which is the big case where Camille Ross says, the fundamental federal right to an education was sacrificed on the altar of taxpayer money. And the justices decided that we wouldn't have a fundamental federal right to education under the Constitution in this country because there are taxpayer rights involved. Even though taxpayers were not members of the lawsuit, taxpayers had no standing. They're just a cultural force hanging around in the background, right? And the crits and other really smart people sort of look at this and say, oh, well, this is sort of always going to be there, so maybe we shouldn't fight for rights so hard. We should just make open-ended demands and needs and make other arguments for things. And I sort of say, hold on, you've made a lot of assumptions about taxpayers there. The technical ones that we know as MMTers, like you've assumed that they generate the money in the first place that is used to pay for rights. But you've also assumed that they are a sort of, again, monolithic force here with a concerted set of interests and that we should somehow bow to them, which doesn't really, you know, make any sense when, again, we're talking about something like fundamental rights. But that taxpayer money is in the way, in the doctrine, in the law. It's in the way of legal thought and not just 
you know, these sort of other prisons that MMT is inclined to talk about. You are listening to Macro and Cheese, a podcast brought to you by Real Progressives, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching the masses about MMT or modern monetary theory. Please help our efforts and become a monthly donor at PayPal or Patreon. Like and follow our pages on Facebook and YouTube, and follow us on Periscope, Twitter, and Instagram. That is very interesting. There's a part of me that wishes I would have followed through and gotten a JD instead of going the business route. <laughs> I'll be careful what you wish for. Well, you know, but everything you guys say, though, I shouldn't even say this out loud, but there was one time way back when I went to a Grateful Dead show and I was sitting there in the parking lot and I was having this existential moment. And I'm thinking to myself, without knowing math, I can't know anything because math is truth. Math is power. And I just was having this <laughs> wild moment here, right? Everything was coming together. You got to know math because you can measure a blade of grass. But what I'm finding is, is that forget economics in the sense of dollars. But in terms of rights, in terms of legal enforceable rights, you guys have been on the leading edge of making this case. And I think that this is a really important point that we're making here because the dollar is a legal construct. The whole concept of enforceable rights and property rights and rights in general are really what we're talking about here. Because without having the right to these things, what do you have? What do you really have? Yeah. I think that this is an important point because I don't think most people feel like they have very many rights. And you watch the way that we're predated. And I say that as an educated white male that has some privilege backing him. And even in my struggle, I look around and I see these groups that are so marginalized and so without a net. The only thing that would actually, in my opinion, provide any kind of security of any variety is a real bed full of enforceable rights that they could draw upon to keep themselves out of the hands of predators. It seems like almost window dressing to talk about programs or other things. It's almost you have to jump straight to rights. You can talk about all the stuff, but I think in the end, I don't want to jump to the conclusion, but keep me honest here. It seems like everything has got to come back to the point of rights. Yeah. So I'm inclined to agree with you, Steve, and this is a huge sort of debate amongst the legal left. What have rights gotten us? Are rights even real? You know, I think you're right. Excuse me, I think you're correct. People feel like they don't have rights in the society, and it says a lot that we keep pushing for rights. So a lot of people have, you know, asked us to pause. But what you've just articulated is sort of the counter critique about rights that I sort of line up behind. The original critical legal scholars, most of whom were white men, said rights obfuscate. We say there's a right to something, but it's usually very vague. 
and people say that they're satisfying rights or governments say that they're satisfying rights all the time when it renders nothing concrete. And the answer to that sort of thesis from especially critical race theorists and feminist legal theorists was, hold on, well, rights might be indeterminate, rights might be unstable, rights might not mean shit without support from the courts, from the FISC, from movements. But they're also the only thing that has achieved a sort of protection for marginalized folks, and especially for poor people of color and for women in this country. And so I still sort of fundamentally adhere to that principle. Where I think MMT comes in is that it says yes to the criticism that the rights aren't real if the money's not behind them. You know, Scott Ferguson likes to say no inalienable rights without inalienable money. If the pot is going to run dry or the pool is going to run dry by the time it comes for you to claim your right, then that's not going to be real. So I fundamentally think, especially when we're talking about things like the Green New Deal, which contains at least four new socioeconomic rights, housing, healthcare, education, and employment on the federal level, we have to be pairing those with essentially blank checks. Otherwise, we're not putting our money where our mouth is. And that's going to hurt people who need the rights for protection the most to get back to your initial point. No, I love the way you tie it in the green deal too. <laughs> so let me ask you, we see the outcomes of racial taxation and it leads to jail. It leads to a lot of penalties. You know, I noticed that you had also written a really incredible document, this black paper on Facebook's attempt at the Libra, which amounts <laughs> a sort of a shadow banking, shadow currency of sorts. It seems like there's a surveillance issue at stake here as well, because if you can't catch them straight up, maybe we can catch you through some other way. Maybe we can watch you some other way. Maybe we can get you, tax you or whatever, some other way. Talk to me about the concept behind the Libra and surveillance within the monetary system. Absolutely. I think that's a great bridge you just made there, Steve. So, yes, surveillance very much is this additional expanding layer to what we were just talking about, right? So in this vacuum of predation, as Bill Black says, what's going to happen when the government's not spending to support people's rights, they're going to go into debt to satisfy their necessity, right? And so for some people, that's not even a possibility. And folks are just shut out of you know, the economy sort of generally. Other folks have to rely on government benefits, but those are becoming stingier and stingier every day, especially utility payments, et cetera, and you can go down the list. But what is happening is that Wall Street continues to only even serve fewer and fewer kinds of customers, right, within the vacuum. As Wall Street you know, decides it's not even worth it to prey on poor people quite the same way anymore is coming Silicon Valley. And Silicon Valley will say, we'll charge you fewer fees on the loan, on the lowest interest rate, lower interest rate. But what we need from you is, of course, your data. We need information about what it is you're spending money on. We want you to open up your phone or your computer to let us derive information from other applications to determine your credit worthiness or whatever it may be. And Silicon Valley is sort of offering a alternative here that I would say is in its own way fundamentally predatory, right? And you had Dr. Yamada Taylor on here probably talking about predatory inclusion. 
And that's when yep. folks who are, yeah, well, she literally wrote the book. So um, <laughs> when folks are offered things under the umbrella of inclusion, it, because they're in particular need of it, but the long-term consequences evaporate or terminate those benefits, right? It's not worth the cost at the end. And my contention would be that we're building, first of all, the mass surveillance web through finance now, and the Libra project by Facebook is a sort of the epitome of that. But then we're also uploading all this data about people who are in particularly vulnerable positions to the servers of these corporations who are in bed with law enforcement and in some sense have no choice. So when we think of all the protests going on and everything right now and how the police are using facial recognition technology to catch protesters, and the feds are doing that as well. We have to remember who has, for instance, the largest facial recognition database in the world, and that's Facebook. So do we want Facebook scanning people's pictures to determine the interest rate on their loan? Is that the sort of thing that we want in the future? Because the legal project is not just a currency. It's a name for a whole new parallel financial system, as you were indicating earlier. In Silicon Valley, you know, Facebook is the first. And it's in a consortium of other groups, including Uber and Lyft and all your faves, but it won't be the last. And Google and Amazon and Apple are surely on the way. <laughs> you know, it's funny because everything Silicon Valley pushes forward, even games now, you just don't want to download them because they're finding a way to get information. They're finding a way to extract more money from you in very casual purchases. Purchases so casual, you don't even realize you did it. And they are really, truly sucking you dry. And it's interesting that they would be the biggest advocates of the UBI. And I know this is not a UBI discussion, but I see the UBI as part of this, even though it's a slight fringy thing, I'm seeing the UBI as a way of fattening these shadow banks. But here, here, we'll give you some money. Just keep pumping it back to us. I don't know. I mean, the structural changes that they're bringing here are not ones of security. They're ones of insecurity, of gig economy, of gig living, of being on your own, of radical libertarianism, in my opinion. What is your take on that? And we can come right back to the subject, but I was just curious where you fit on that. No, absolutely. I think that's a great time, Steve. And it's important to hit on this, to understand the ethos of the Lieber Project and other efforts as well. I said this in the nation when Mayor Tubbs' proposal came out you know, that was sort of astroturfed by Silicon Valley. I said, you know, show me the document where it says, you know, everyone's guaranteed a decent income for living and I'll sign it. But what is happening here is a vision, a whole vision of a social future, as you indicated, that's being pushed by the people who are funding UBI, et cetera. There's no vision of the other side of the coin of empowering people in the production process. There's no empowerment for workers generally, but there's also no empowerment for debtors, right? And we've seen with the COVID checks, actually, what happens when you don't think about income payments through the lens of debt collection. The banks were snaking the payments and judgment debt collectors are snaking people's COVID payments, right? And Silicon Valley is now in the debt game. It doesn't have any interest in a sort of wholesome financial picture for people. Income is one thing, but what's going to happen, you know, if those very same people who are pushing these projects are the ones who are taking it on the back end? 
And that is really the vision for a lot of them. It's not everybody, but that is part of the California ethos, so to speak. You know, it's interesting. I'm watching third-party movements and other groups coalescing. Obviously, the outcome of the primaries left a lot of people, millions and millions of people, very unsatisfied with the outcome and very unhappy with the direction of the nation, especially in the progressive community. And I'm watching them, and they are tying hands with the UBI community. And the conflation with COVID payments and an overall UBI and the concept of they take really nice, feel-good sentences, almost like the GOP, quite frankly, Mm -hmm. where they take these bumper sticker ideologies, throw them out there, And it's not even the tip of the iceberg, because if you look below what really comes with that, with the fine print, it's devastating. And this is what the GOP so often does. What do you mean you're going to take away our right to a gun? What do you mean you're going to make us wear a mask? You're a tyrant, you know, and all these things resonate with people. And the UBI sounds so good. And Libra sounds so good. And the ability to do a cryptocurrency sounds so good. And reality is, is that most people aren't listening to these deep dive discussions where we peel below the iceberg. They only see the tip and they only have interest in the tip, just the tip. (laughs) Um, and, And so how do we take this? Because it's the people who need to hear it most that probably won't hear it. How do we message these things? They're very complex. Yeah. So, I mean, the whole issue with, you know, surveillance money and sort of these things popping up, it's hard to follow, right? And that's on purpose because, you know, as you can see from the paper with the folks I work with in DC, like it's layers of tech jargon on layers of finance jargon on layers of legal jargon. And then the coding on the package is pretty simple, right? Like Facebook says it's building a public good. Just click here, agree to our terms of service, and now you can transfer money anywhere in the world, you know? Bingo. (laughs) (laughs) But like, The thing that can never be forgotten, despite all these noble promises, despite Silicon Valley's version of UBI, despite, you know, in the case of Libra, them saying this is going to help, you know, immigrants send money back home, this is going to help bank the underbank, etc., is that's never, ever really what they're after. And Bill Black has made this pretty clear. He says, when Libra came out, he said, you know, what's the business model? Has the business model of Facebook changed? No, the business model of the internet hasn't changed. It's still data collection. It's still mass surveillance. So even though, you know, for instance, in the case of Libra, they may code it even with cool tech bro, like talk about cryptocurrency, et cetera, they're still here to spy on you. That's how they make money. And that fundamental fact cannot be forgotten. And it especially, again, cannot be forgotten now in this era because just as taxation is racialized, surveillance is racialized. Yes. You know, it may be the case, for instance, that someone wants to use Facebook to send money back home to, you know, family in Egypt. And then next thing they know, they're getting, you know, calls from law enforcement because Facebook has, you know, flagged that incorrectly and sent it to the wrong folks. You know, like that is the world that we're seeing. And then there's, of course, the more direct targeting of protesters, et cetera. But at a certain point, we have to ask, no matter how, neat or you know quote-unquote philanthropic these sort of organizations are like how much more power are we going to allow them to accrue and that turns us back to mnt that turns us back to public provisioning 
there really is no reason that the U.S. government shouldn't be, you know, supplying COVID payments through a system as fast and as ubiquitous as Libra wants to be without collecting data like Libra wants to. We can have that. The public sector seems to have an allergy to innovation and punt everything over to, you know, the corporate tech. Let me ask you, given the technical deficit, the racial technical gap as well, Mm -hmm. the access to the internet, the access to state-of-the-art stuff for people in poverty and so forth, the concept of the underbanked and all, just the idea of taking something like that. I mean, Mercer Baradaran has been on the forefront of that. So as many folks, including yourself, in terms of the real role of like public banking and postal banking and things like that. How does racial justice in a Libra-like world look? What would the opposite be? What would be the positive image of that? Yeah. So if it's truly the case that we think everybody deserves basic financial services, there's just no need for a corporation like Facebook, which has been served with the largest you know, fines in the history of privacy law, which is just constant constantly breaking promises to regulators and truly just showing contempt for its users. There's no reason an entity like Facebook or an entity like the Libra Association, it's quote-unquote non-profit association, which is headquartered in Geneva, Switzerland, by the way, to be protected by the very strong banking laws there. <laughs> it doesn't have to be this way. And the alternative, I think, in a lot of you know folks like Professor Baradaran and other folks that you've mentioned, think is, is truly that the government should provide this. And I think there can be multiple complementary ways of doing that. You can have Fed accounts that are available at the post office. You can have local public banks. You can have state public banks. This is all good, first and foremost, if it's backed up by general fiscal spending, as we all know, because credit is not an answer to poverty. It's an answer to some things, but it's not a structural answer to poverty. I think these are all great options. What's very important and that I think is becoming even more really central to the debate and to the discourse, as the Libra Project shows, is privacy. When we create this sort of new form of public money, are people going to have the option to have essentially a public bank account and a public wallet where you can have you know, low-volume transactions that the government bank doesn't have to see? Or are we going to foreclose everything and just move completely into a bank account system and, you know, perhaps push people out and not include them in the public option if they're reasonably wary of government surveillance or of just keeping all their information where a government authority can reach it as easily as sending a subpoena. So that's really what we're looking at. And then, of course, that relies fundamentally on broadband and upon building the digital infrastructure that underlies all of this. And that's important on racial grounds. That's also important for rural areas. There's a sociologist at Michigan, Terry Friedland, who just put out an excellent book on this. I'd highly encourage people to check out. I think it's interesting. In my world, I'm a project manager, and I focus on these four things, inputs, outputs, tools, and techniques. Mm-hmm. And if I was to break down the inputs and outputs, you're talking about the ability to transact. You're talking about the ability to receive your paycheck through direct deposit. You're talking about the ability to get a loan, a low interest loan. You're talking about a whole host of things that are a public good. Banking was never intended to be sexy, (laughs) but it's clearly become a great way of some people to get rich. And I think Bill Black, again, wrote the great book, 
The greatest way to rob a bank is to own one. We've got an awful lot of opportunity here to redesign access to mm-hmm. resources, access to money and so forth. But I think people conflate the idea of cryptocurrency with this idea of a public opportunity to do a digital currency as mm-hmm. part of a public monopoly. Can you explain the difference between crypto and what we're kind of talking about here? Yeah, sure thing. So yeah, when we're talking about different currencies and coins and especially the distinctions between them and public forms of money, you know, it's probably useful to think about one access, which is usage. Like, is this used for retail payments? Is this like more of an investment vehicle? And then another one, which is privacy. Because you can have very private like retail money, money just for everyday use. You can have very public, exposed money that you use for retail use. And as far as investment vehicles go, you can have sort of the same thing. So cryptocurrency just means that, well, depends on who you ask these days, but it uses encryption in some way or another. For most systems, encryption is involved in you know, logging into your account and trading, etc. And for most cryptocurrencies, but not Libra, in a few other of these corporate currencies, it also means the data is kept in an encrypted form. Libra is arguably not a cryptocurrency anymore because they don't give a single damn about privacy at all. <laughs> so it's just a private money that is not serve. It's a private sector money that doesn't provide privacy and doesn't have the advantages of public money. Now, public money is useful, and here I mean you know, government-issued money, for instance, but you know, anything issued by a polity with the strength to enforce you know, the equivalent of taxation, that money is backed up you know, essentially by the law, but by force, of course, at the end of the day, by the taxman. And so it has useful retail value. Now, most cryptocurrencies don't have useful retail value yet. Most of them, like it's easier to speculate on Bitcoin, obviously, being the prime example. Libra is an attempt to create what's called a stable coin, to stabilize what sort of looks like a cryptocurrency into something like public money. But at the end of the day, it's only backed up by the money that the Libra Association has from sales of the coins and other things. It's not backed up by all the you know, good and bad things that come with the government. So there's never going to be a time where using Libra coins is as safe as it would be to use US dollars, for instance. But that's not the case necessarily everywhere in the world, right? So the real threat here is currency substitution. In some places where they're you know, subject to dollarization, instead you're going to get liberalization. And if it's easier to use Libra than dollar, then people are going to flock to that. And then you have no monetary sovereignty in these countries that are essentially running their economies on Facebook, right? Right. <laughs> so that's a big sweep, but I'm just sort of trying to show how different very different these monies can be in several different respects. And at the end of the day, these private sector monies are never going to be as reliable or as strong as the public monies unless they essentially usurp the backing of the government, unless FACER becomes too big to fail, right? So I want to stop you right there because you hit something that I'm afraid that if I let it go, it'll be lost. And that is (laughs) the idea... No, this is perfect. This is a great segue into what I think is an important point. The idea of folks doing currency substitution falling over to Libra, but going back a few years even, everybody was saying Bitcoin is going to eliminate the dollar. All these crazy 
3 a.m. type YouTube video screamers mm-hmm. and stuff. And clearly that's not the case. But in this case, there is the chance of some dollar substitution. And the idea here is not a matter of whether, you know, dollar hegemony is such a good thing or a bad thing one way or the other. The issue here is, is that when you're looking at creating the public space, you're looking at creating public spending, you're looking at services, you're looking at the public purpose. Libra doesn't serve that. Libra is a private entity. Mm -hmm. It's not a public good. And the idea of Congress writing a law to make Libra dollars pay for infrastructure or Libra dollars to pay for whatever, right? It's not how it works. So there is no Medicare for all, hypothetically, with Libra. There is no Green New Deal with Libra. There's none of that. I mean, this is purely somebody in a private sector making money off of it and us exchanging dollars. By doing that, we end up hurting the ability to do these really important things that directly impact communities such as African-American and Latinx and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between public money and private money in that vein? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the way that tech works in general is that it often finds something that they can sell because it's convenient to the individual, even though it's very harmful to society, right? And people say, oh, wow, neat, and they don't think about the bigger implications. And you're right to say that, you know, the Libra project is engaged in this sort of aim for substitution. If it doesn't replace other currencies, then there's no point in having it because you want the data from the transactions, right? And from all the infrastructure that sort of surrounds the project, it needs to replace other currencies. Now, what's going to happen when some people swap well, what would happen if some people, you know, swapped their whatever money they happen to have for Libra coins is individually they might be able to make payments faster. They may be able to buy certain things quicker. They might gain Facebook rewards. They might get more likes. They might get the content pushed. Who knows? The limits are pretty much boundless when there's no antitrust law in this country and Facebook can continue sort of doing what it wants. But there's never going to be a point where Facebook and its partners have to invest money in the public good. There's never going to be a point where there's any sort of democratic control beyond what regulators can sort of cajole them to across the world. But there's no obligations that come with this money. You're exactly right. So you see all the rage with, especially in neoliberal circles, the concept of public-private partnerships, the idea that somehow or another the federal government could conscript, if you will, the Libra from them is kind of a ridiculous thing. But I've seen so many times where the powers that be in the corporate sector somehow or another secure the socialization of the win of the backing of the government while simultaneously spreading their losses amongst us. And these public-private partnerships, these P3 things, is that a real possibility here with Libra? Is that something that we could expect to see? Is that something we should be concerned about looking at? Yeah, it's great that you highlight that, Steve, because we actually are going to see a push. Some people in the building of whatever this new system is, whether we call it central bank, digital currency, or a digital dollar, or whatever this new public digital real-time money that we create is and overlay across the whole system, It can take many different forms. And some people very much are saying that the Fed should partner with Libra or the Fed should partner with MasterCard 
or the Fed should partner with Visa. And the goal here is always to say like, oh, it's just more efficient one, so you don't cost the federal government money, even though the Fed has pretty much unlimited operating budget, which, you know, our friend Nathan Tank is fond of repeating. <laughs> and they're doing this even though, and then the other thing, excuse me, the other thing that they say is that, you know, well, the tech sector, you just knows how to do things quickly as if the government couldn't, you know, like sort of hire the tech sector to build things and procure it rather than inviting them into the middle of the system, right? Than having Visa or Facebook Libra control the rails. But people are very much asking for this. Trump's former CFTC chairman wants to do a public-private partnership for a digital dollar and involve a bunch of people from the crypto sector, involve major payments companies. And what that's going to do, in addition to, you know, of course, allowing all these companies to wet their beak and charge fees and et cetera, et cetera, it's going to shred privacy. It's hard enough to make the government respect, again, rights, in this case, privacy rights. There are very few of them that we have in the United States, especially compared to other legal jurisdictions. But that is difficult enough. But when you invite a private party into the transaction, your case for privacy becomes even weaker, right? Like if I'm in the room with just the government, I can be said to really be you know, trying to keep things private into myself. If you and I are in a room, and the government is listening to us, I'm already publishing things to you, so to speak, right? I'm already breaking a privacy wall. And certain protections that you have against government surveillance cease to apply, essentially, when there's another party in the room. And so PPP is especially destructive within this context, I'd say. Wow, they never, ever thought of it in that way, but that makes it even more insidious, like these charter schools and other things. It all comes back to these public-private partnerships Wow. <laughs> wow is all I got to say. All right. So I want to give you a closing remark. I have one final question for you, and that is in the context of racial taxation and the concept that we're dealing with today with mobilization against a police state that has been oppressive and cruel to people of color, how do we tie this all up so that the impacted communities can see how this concept of surveillance through currency and through cryptocurrency and through these public-private partnerships impacts them directly. Yeah. So I think that, you know, we've had such a wide-ranging discussion today, Steve. It's an indication. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, 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 no. I think it's good. It just shows that racial taxation and racial surveillance and, you know, other forms of, of oppression even are not inseparable from the design of the monetary system. And I think, for instance, abolitionists are doing a great job right now of avoiding this taxpayer money rhetoric, are sort of weaving things into their point of view, and we should be you know, at the ready to help movements and vice versa, right? Like we have a lot to learn as well. And I think learning from the heat of the moment is really important. And these things that are becoming apparent as the Overton windows not only shift, but smash against the wall is really, really, really crucial. And there's a lot to learn right now. For instance, we had a talk about you know law enforcement surveillance as it relates to the form of money and why we can't jump on all these tech currencies. Like really, there's no substitute for just being there with an open hand and whether it's with a movement leader or just your neighbor sort of helping tie things together. The fact is that we live in a system of interlocked oppressions right now. And we sort of all need each other's vantage points if we're going to overcome. Oh, that's powerful. 
Look, man, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. It's been too long. (laughs) We wanted to get you on here for so long. I mean, you're so eloquent. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you, Steve. Excellent questions. I think we did tie everything together pretty well. It was hammering up predation and MMT is the opposite the whole time. I spread out the subject matter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, listeners out there. So hopefully you all will be able to check out Raul's work. Raul, why don't you tell them where they can find these documents you've put together? Sure. So the essay, Racial Taxation in the Era of Monetary Sanctions, is available in the UCLA Criminal Justice Law Review. And then you can find the Libra Black Paper on the websites of either Americans for Financial Reform or the Demand Progress Education. All right. And with that, I want to thank you again for joining us, folks. If you have any questions, please leave us comments. Let us know. We'll do our best to find out the answers for you. And with that, I bid you all a good day. Thank you from Steve Grumbine and Raul Carrillo. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone. Macro and Cheese is produced by Andy Kennedy. Descriptive writing by Virginia Cox and promotional artwork by Mindy Donham. Macro and Cheese is publicly funded by our Real Progressive Patreon account. If you would like to donate to Macro and Cheese, please visit patreon.com slash realprogressives. I want the truth!